I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome to this edition of World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we look at Europe and the threat that the budget of some of Europe's biggest nations, in particular France and Italy, will be rejected by the European Commission. Is that really possible? And what would be the economic and political consequences of such a move? Joining me on the line from Brussels is our bureau chief there, Peter Spiegel. And here in the studio is Tony Barber, our Europe editor. Peter, first, just give us a sense of what the state of play is. I mean, France and the others have all submitted their budgets. What is the Commission doing? Well, the Commission has actually taken its first step towards rejecting five Eurozone budgets, including France and Italy. The other three that are getting notified are Austria, Slovenia, and Malta. And what the rules say is you submit your budget to the commission, and these rules were just adopted literally two years ago at the height of the Eurozone crisis. You submit your budget to the European Commission. The commission then has two weeks to decide whether they are in significant breaking of the rules, the word they use. So they have to decide that very quickly. And within one week, they have to notify the country whether they are thinking about this thing. So literally this week, they've gone to those five countries, again, including France and Italy, and told them, we are now thinking about rejecting you, which for both countries where you've seen you know, a huge rise in anti-EU sentiment would be politically explosive if they actually do it next week. So, Peter, I mean, obviously they feel that they're legally bound to do this, but is it really necessary in economic terms? I mean, are these infractions so dangerous to the European economy that you, it's worth courting a political explosion? You could argue that, but I'll tell you the one place they don't believe that is Berlin. And these rules were inspired by and argued by and pushed by Angela Merkel. And people I am talking to here in Brussels say that Merkel is pushing them very hard for a very strict interpretation of them. And it says that if you miss these targets, particularly on deficit targets, you get the budget sent back to you and you're asked to uh, bring it back. And it is the first real test of these rules put in place in 2011 and 2012. And for the Germans, this is a test of whether they can actually trust some of the southern countries that keep calling for debt mutualization and some of these other measures that would put Germany and German taxpayers at risk to all sorts of things. They want to make sure these countries live up to the rules before they start heading down the path towards a real economic and monetary union. So, Tony, I mean, it looks like a very important moment, but I mean, Brussels has a way of kind of fudging these things. We've all lived through various euro debt crises. Do you feel this is a big moment? I think that for an institution which feels so governed by legal procedure and by rules that are formulated after endless sessions of negotiation among governments, that were these rules to be torn up at the first moment they're really being tested, it would feel like quite a big moment for that reason. And particularly from the point of view of Germany and its allies, who locate the origins of the debt crisis and banking sector a crisis of 2010 onwards in the infraction of EU fiscal rules by Germany itself, it must be said, as well as France in 2003. For them, it really, I think, is a big deal. That said, the room for some sort of compromise, particularly over France, I think does exist because 
Germany prizes its special relationship with France and I think does to some extent buy the idea that France is an exceptional partner even if the two don't look like equals on the economic front anymore. Peter, we'll get back to this question of whether there'll be a compromise in a moment, but we've talked about why the Germans are pushing it so hard. Give us a sense of how the French and Italians are playing this and how big a setback it would be if their budgets were rejected. Well, the French have already engaged in negotiations, for lack of a better word. I mean, we had the French finance minister, Sepin, who traveled to Berlin just this week to meet with his German counterpart, Wolfgang Schäuble. There is a sense in Brussels that the French will actually move, particularly on structural reforms. They need to show some improvement on their structural budget balance to get any waiver from the rules, and they just haven't done it thus far. So if they make a little bit of an effort and make a little bit of a movement, there is some sense amongst the Germans that the French are moving on this. The Italians are much more digging in their heels on this one, and it has a lot to do with Matteo Renzi, the new Italian prime minister, and his sort of his feeling that he is the new champion of the center-left in Europe. And he has picked a fight on this, and this is something he's been arguing ever since he's been in office, that he doesn't like the 3% rule, the 3% rule being you've got to get your deficit under 3% of GDP. He's belittled it. He said it's from another era. He doesn't want to have to abide by it. He will abide by it, he says, but he's made this a real political point in Italy. So there's two different political situations here. In France, President Hollande is very weak, and you've had European elections in May where Front National, running on a very anti-EU platform, you know, we've got to get our sovereignty back, finished first in the vote. And we've seen poll after poll recently that says Front National could knock the socialists out of the first round of the next presidential elections in France. So Hollande is really on his back foot, under real threat from Marine Le Pen and the Front National in France. So that situation is quite bad. Renzi comes from a much stronger position. He did very well in the European elections. They are now the largest party, actually, in the socialist group, in the center-left group in the European Parliament. He's still popular at home, and he can argue that he has a mandate to fight with Brussels on this one. So I think he had two different situations, much more politically at risk in France right now than in Italy. Tony, what about the economic situation? Because I know, I'm sure economists will be wringing their hands at this discussion about, you know, the balance of power and the legal rights and be saying... The European economy is still fragile. Is this what it needs now, this kind of single-minded focus on bringing everyone's budget deficit below 3%? Well, nobody would put forward that argument more passionately than Prime Minister Renzi in Italy, because Italy is par excellence the Eurozone country that has experienced absolutely no growth from the day the monetary union took effect in 1999 to the present day. And what's interesting here is that the EU's fiscal rules do allow some flexibility for countries that are in a particularly difficult economic situation by which most people understand a prolonged recession or something like that. And this is exactly the situation Italy does face. So Italy, you would think, is on reasonably strong grounds to say, please apply the flexibility that these rules allow to us, because if you don't do it for us, when are you ever going to do it for anybody? I don't think the situation is quite the same in France. It wasn't hit by the debt crisis and the subsequent recession anything like as hard as Italy or indeed other Eurozone countries. And so there, the pressure to deliver something on structural reforms, I think, is stronger. But overall, there would be a pretty strong view outside Germany and its immediate allies, I think, that uh, an emphasis on balanced budgets at a time when demand is so low 
in the eurozone economy just doesn't make sense. And an interesting example of this, by the way, is a country that's normally aligned with Germany, namely Austria, whose chancellor has rather breezily dismissed the European Commission's demand to come up with a structurally balanced budget this year, as what he said was an interesting opinion, but we won't listen to it. Right, which was a really interesting point, because can he breezily dismiss the European Commission? Can the French, when they say, look, we're a sovereign country in the end, it's up to us? I mean, legally, they're in the wrong, aren't they? Well, there are technical procedures for putting a country in the dock and punishing it, none of which have ever gone to the absolute limit, it must be said, in the Eurozone's history. But essentially, they've been tightened up a bit, as Peter was saying, in the reforms of 2011 and 12, with the result that it would require a majority of governments to reverse a decision by the European Commission to issue a punishment. So it's been made a bit harder to go down that road. But usually what you find in EU negotiations is that some kind of compromise, an agreement to split the difference somehow is reached before it comes to that point. Okay, so it sounds like a kind of Brussels compromise in the works. But can I finish by asking you both for your broad opinion on the Eurozone crisis broadly interpreted, both as an economic, financial and a political thing. Certainly talking to non-specialists over the last year, I've got the feeling that people have put it to the back of their minds, thought Europe, okay, it's not doing brilliantly, but the really acute crisis is over. Is it possible that these arguments in Brussels are a sign that the euro crisis in some form or other is coming back? Or is it just something that will get smoothed over? Tony first, and then I'll come to Peter. The relative calm on the financial markets, I think, is overdone. The bond yields being almost at record historic lows for countries that only a couple of years ago were in serious trouble, I think shows you the way markets swing too far in one direction and then too far in the other. That said, I don't see a likelihood of a systemic threat to the financial system in the way that we had after the Greek uh, crisis arose. I do think it's much more a case of where is economic growth going to come from and how do you bring down unemployment at such catastrophically high levels? And the answers are there in principle and in part. That's to say a kind of agreement to see some structural reform in France and Italy, some investment in Germany and backed by the European Central Bank uh, proceeding with asset purchases. But getting all that to gel in exactly the right mix at exactly the right time is extraordinarily difficult to do and I'm not sure they'll make it. Peter what do you think on the euro crisis and can I put to you my pet theory which is that if it comes back it'll be because of the rise of political extremes such as Marine Le Pen which you talked about earlier in response to a poor economy and tough enforcement from Brussels. That was about the point I was going to make. The line I always say when I give lectures about this is we've moved from an economic crisis to a political crisis. The hair on fire period of the Eurozone crisis is unlikely to come back. We've had a bit of a spook in Greece where the government now is claiming it's ready to move back to the markets when it clearly isn't. But that really hasn't seen any contagion or any really severe economic market reaction that we saw, you know, 2011-2012. But the combination of what looks like a triple-dip recession, because you know, just as we look like we're pulling out of a recession here in Europe, it seems to be heading in the wrong direction again, particularly even in Germany. The combination of that plus you know, anti-EU sentiment in all these countries because of five years of crisis and slow growth, that is where the real risk is. And it's not just 
the bailout countries anymore. It's not just Greece and it's not just Portugal where you're seeing real anti-EU sentiment. It's in the core. It's in France. It's in the Netherlands. It's in Italy. And we've now seen regional elections, Lunder elections in Germany, where this party, Alternative for Deutschland, has polled, you know, 12, 15, 18 percent. So we're even in the most pro-EU and most core of core countries, we're seeing anti-EU sentiment really blossom. And if it becomes an issue where the European Commission, which I think is likely to happen, has to come out and reject budgets from major economies at a time anti-EU sentiment is on the rise, I think that is the political crisis we're running into right now. And I think you put your finger on it. I don't think we're likely to see the markets react, but I do think we're likely to see the voters react, which could be much more problematic for a lot of these leaders. Okay. Peter Spiegel in Brussels, thank you very much indeed. Thanks also to Tony Barber here in London. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.